Well, if you don't have a Bible today, um, I invite you to uh, borrow one of, one of ours. We have a few at the table back there, so you're welcome to have uh, one of those. Certainly, we encourage you to, uh, to be in the Word uh, with us as we study together. We're in, we're in Hebrews 13, and uh, last week we embarked upon a, a very important two-part study on the subjects of, uh, of all things, um, sex and money. Um, some might be shocked that a church would talk about such things, but we talk about such things because the Bible talks about such things. And so we, we looked at these things last week. And the author of Hebrews has moved uh, at this point from a look at Christian ethics in relation to others to a look at Christian conduct and ethics in relation to ourselves. And of all the topics and all the things he could talk about that exist in our world, he picks these two, sex and money. They're huge, huge deals in our world today. Just look at our world. We're sex-obsessed, and we're certainly money-obsessed. <clears throat> and the question arises when we look at these things, when we think about these subjects, how are Christians to conduct ourselves in a world that is so focused and obsessed with these Things Isn't it important that we have instruction? It is. And aren't you glad that God has given us such instruction? And so last week, we looked at a part one, and this is Christian conduct relating to sex and money, a part two. And we went quite long. And if you missed last week, I, I encourage you to go on our website. Uh, Mark has uh, edited the sermon and put it on there. Um, we went a bit long last week, but uh, how do you cover all that you can possibly say about such a subject in one week. You, you certainly can't do it justice, but I also didn't want to belabor the subject and so did my best to speak as completely as I could from a biblical perspective of God's purpose of marriage and sex. I love that scripture is not silent on these issues. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 is what we looked at last week, just as a quick recap. It says, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Very simply put, God revealed in scripture his one and only provision for sex, and it is marriage. Marriage is a precious thing then. Marriage is very precious. The world, if you look at the world's um, examples of marriage, you wouldn't get that, sadly, but we certainly get the correct picture in scripture and we ought to see it in the church. Marriage is a precious thing. It's unique because it's meant to be between one man and one woman, two partners coming together as one permanent monogamous relationship. It's a one flesh relationship and it is consummated or completed. It is strengthened through the sexual union which is why that is the only place sex is to belong. And so we read that sex is, in marriage is a pure thing. He says undefiled, so it's, it's a pure place for it. And all of the sins that you think about that can be committed against one another in a marriage between a husband and a wife, and there are a lot, even in the church, because we're sinful. If you think about all the sins that can be committed there, there's only one that has the power to break that bond. It's sexual sin. 
And so it's a big thing when we talk about sexual sin. All sexual activity outside of the place of of marriage then is a perversion of God's design. It's impure. It's defiled. And specifically, we looked at fornication, and we looked at a couple examples of that in pornography and premarital sex, which is so prevalent today. And we looked at adultery, which is sex that's outside of a, a marriage relationship when one is married. And we're told that God will judge. God will judge people uh, who are um, characterized by those particular sins. Now, obviously, we're not judged just by those things and only, but, but those are serious things in particular. And we certainly see uh, those, those acts coming against the church today and specifically against marriage, God's design for marriage. And so there was much more said about that, but that's a brief recap. I encourage you to go and listen to it on the website, or you can watch the full service on our Facebook. Today, we're going to look at the second topic, which is money. There's not much we can say about money, is there? (laughs) Well, the Bible has a lot to say about money. You know, Jesus had a lot to say about money. Jesus talked about money more than he talked about heaven or hell. Of Jesus' 39 parables, 11 of them are about money. And I think money is such a focus because he understands that, like sex, money has a place where it can occupy our hearts, has power to do that. And when it occupies our hearts, then it demands our worship, and we become money worshipers. We're a sex-worshipping, money-worshipping world. That's our world today. And before we jump into our passage today, I think it's important to look at some basic principles regarding money or possessions. And Jesus actually refers to them as a, a, in a sort of an old um, view, but as your treasure. And it's in Matthew chapter 6. So if you turn in your Bible, it's the left-hand turn to the very first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 6. I just want to take a quick look. It's a lengthy passage. I just want to read it, but I'm just going to draw three treasure principles from this passage. Matthew chapter 6 beginning in verse 19. I want to start here because I think you'll find these helpful because you'll see these in our passage today. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. I'm going to read all the way to 33. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, or money. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? 
Consider, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass, of the fields, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, there is a lot there. It's not our passage today, so I'm not going to to talk about everything in here. That would be our whole day. But there are some principles I want to draw out here, treasure principles. And the first is this, that every Everyone, Jesus tells us that everyone on this planet is living for some kind of treasure. You are a treasure seeker and you are a treasure hoarder. You're you're just a bunch of pirates. Uh, we're, We're all pirates. We're treasure seeking people. And he says, you either are laying them up for yourselves on earth or you're laying those things up in heaven, but either way, you're laying up treasures. That's the first principle. So get that behind you and accept that I am a treasure seeker. We could look into your heart and pry it open. We would see treasure there. What would it be? What do you treasure? The second principle we come from, uh, from this is that the thing that is your treasure will control your heart. Very clearly, he says in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay, so whether you're putting it on earth or whether you're putting it in heaven, your heart is with that treasure. Your heart's there. Your your, your heart is with the treasure and your treasure is with the heart. They're together. They're, they're, They're linked. And so when we talk about your treasure and your heart, we're saying your desires, what I truly value in life. What is it? Your heart is there. And the third principle we find here is this. What controls your heart then will control your words and your behavior, your conduct. And that's really the second half of of all of this. When he talks about the eye uh, being bad or dark, our eye is fixated on something. It's fixated on the treasure. And then from whatever that treasure is, whether we decide to serve God or money, whether it's in heaven or on earth, then that's going to dictate our actions. And, that, and you see the actions of this, this person. Oh, they worry. They worry about it. Oh, what am I going to eat? Oh, what am I going to drink? Oh, what am I going to wear? Where's, going to, where's this going to come from? Where's that going to from? And Jesus says, listen, don't worry. God feeds the birds. God clothes the lilies of the field. Doesn't he know what you need as his Child, what controls your heart then is going to affect your words and your behavior. Those are treasure principles. Now, I want to take us to our passage today in Hebrews chapter 13. This is just to set this up. Hebrews 13. I want you to see that the treasure principle is here in our passage. We're just looking at two verses today, verses 5 and verse 6. Hebrews 13, verse 5. 
Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word to us today. And we do pray, Lord, that you would grant us insight and wisdom, would help us to see the truths in this passage, some of which are maybe more difficult to see. Lord, would you prepare our hearts by your spirit to receive these truths, Lord? These are such important areas, such important matters that affect us all. Lord, we need to hear what your word says about these things. So help us by your spirit and for your glory to understand. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, just as we saw that um, sex is, is a pure thing in marriage, um, when it's practiced within God's uh, provision, marriage, and that outside of it, it becomes bad, it becomes uh, defiled, um, the same idea is carried forward here in regards to money or, or possessions. They're good as long as we remain content with what we have. It's clearly there in the passage. The minute covetousness enters our hearts, then those things are perverted. They're no longer uh, good. They're bad. So where adultery, fornication related to sex, those were the concerns of verse 4. Covetousness related to possessions is the concern of verses 5 and 6. Now, what is covetousness? The word we see here, it's actually two words in our English uh, here, without covetousness, but it's one word in the Greek, alphilarguros, and it means not loving money or, or not greedy. That's because it's without covetousness. So just covetousness then would be loving money, right? Just, just that would be loving money. Our passage says without covetousness, so this word has the not with it. So what this tells us is that love is an aspect of coveting, which means this about coveting. It is an attitude of the heart. Okay, covetousness is an attitude of the heart. And we're told that our conduct must be without covetousness. Our conduct, what we do, what we say, our behavior, all of that is directly related to where our heart is. Now, where did we see that? That's the treasure principle, you see? That's the treasure principle of Matthew 6. It's easier to see there. It's not as easy to see here. I wanted to make it easy for you to see. It's the treasure principle at work in Hebrews 13. In relation to money and to possessions, Christian conduct is to be free from the love of money. And that's the first point. We're to be free from the love of money. Not surprisingly, as you read the Bible, this is a requirement for one who would lead a church. You cannot have a pastor who is greedy for money. You cannot have an elder board that, are, that is greedy uh, for money, which is why it's so interesting that the churches that are so prosperous are the ones that are so desperate for money because it's one of the key signs that you're, you're not qualified. You're to be free from the love of money. In Titus 1.7, it says a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God. 
That's amazing, isn't it? A steward of God. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. A Christian cannot live effectively. And he certainly can't lead effectively if he has a love for money. It weakens our faith. It demonstrates a lack of trust in God. So as Christians, we're told we need to be absolutely free of the love of money. Now, how do we do that? That's easy to say it. How do we do that? We all need money. You, you, can't, you can't live without money. We have mortgages to pay, bills to pay on top of that. We've got kids to feed, wives to buy fun, sparkly things for. Not mine. She's really content with everything. That's just, that's other, other husbands. You know, we can't, we can't live without it. It's a, ne- it's a necessity, isn't it? Um, the issue with, with the Western uh, culture, because we're, we're told here that we just need to be okay, you know, just with the basics, but the Western culture, we're not content with just the basics. If you were to look at all the ways that you spend money over the given course of a year, if God were able to itemize your spending, would he be able to tell where your heart is, where your treasure is? What's important to you? Paul David Tripp said it this way, money is a window into what really does rule your heart. And that's so true with so many of us. Your money speaks. So what does it say about you? Now listen, having money is not a bad thing. Spending money is not a bad thing. Having possessions is not a bad thing. It's when those things rule our hearts. That's the bad thing. It's a sign that covetousness, money, is ruling our hearts to some degree or another. Covetousness, greediness, the love of money is there. Now, covetousness, when we look at this in the Bible, it's condemned just as strongly as adultery, as fornication, the things we looked at in a verse prior to this. So it's not surprising that he comes in and brings covetousness here. It's the 10th commandment. God said, thou shall not covet. Now, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10, I just want you to see how it's included with all of these sort of con- condemned sins. Do you, know, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetousness, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Wedged in between all those is nor the covetous. Wow, covetousness must be a pretty big deal. Well, it is. And Paul defines it in Colossians as something very interesting. And look at the Colossians passage, Colossians 3, 5. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now you see why God hates it. He begins with, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And he ends with, don't covet because that's a God. You commit idolatry when you covet. You essentially love something more than God. Do you see why? Because that thing has captured your heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When possessions and money and all of these things that we love to build our kingdoms, don't we? We take all these this, the possessions and the money and we build our own little kingdoms. It's so crazy. 
It's all built upon stuff that can just go. And we build it and we think, oh, if one thing just falls out, my world's going to collapse. Yes, that's why we're not just build it upon uh, uh, money and possessions. It just can, can go. Now, love of money here in our passage is contrasted with something else, contentment. And I love this. Those, those who love money can really have a love of money. that it's, it's captured their hearts, are not content people. <laughs> not content with what? What are they not content with? Well, ultimately, hopefully you're seeing the connection here. They're not content with God. If, if you have a love of money, <clears throat> you're automatically not content because it's contrasted with being content. And if you're not content, then you're not content with God. It's a heart that says, God isn't giving me what I need. God isn't giving me what I want. He is not giving me enough. The problem is not the money. The problem is you are discontent with God. What he has determined is good enough for you. And if I asked you today whether or not you love money, most of you would say, oh, I don't, I don't love money. I want to look at the Bible. I want to see what the Bible says about the love of money. And then you can answer that question for yourself. I want to take us to another passage. It's 1 Timothy chapter 6. So if you're in Hebrews, it's just a short left-hand turn. Uh, back just a couple of books, you're going to see Philemon, Titus, 2 Timothy, and then 1 Timothy. And it's at the end of 1 Timothy's chapter 6. You're going to be familiar with these verses. Sorry, my throat's a little dry. 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 6. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now, I just want to pull out a couple of things briefly here. Again, this is not the passage we're studying, but I want you to see a couple of things. First, I want you to see what it says about contentment, because contentment's in our passage. And I want you to see this, the benefits of contentment. Just a couple of points I came up with that I want you to be uh, aware of. And this word contentment means sufficiency or satisfaction. That's contentment. It's being, it's being satisfied. When you go uh, to a nice restaurant and you have a nice big meal, whatever that meal is that you like, you should push yourself away from the table, content, satisfied. Unless you're James Buffett, and then you order another plate. But I, I, you, you're usually content. I'm just kidding, buddy. Kind of. My point, Christians are to be satisfied with what God has provided. That's contentment. We're not to seek more than what he has provided. And now here he mentions the basics in our passage of food and clothing. You see it there. A shelter is probably assumed here, but, but God's provisions of the basics is the point. We need to be content or satisfied with these things. Now, we can have possessions above and beyond the basics. That's, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with it as long as God has provided them. 
and as long as you are truly content. Now, what are the benefits of contentment? I want you to think of one of these here. One of, this is, one of them is this. Contented people are thankful people. Contented people are thankful people. That is a, a benefit because unthankful people are complainers. <laughs> They're the people that sap you of your joy. They, they, they have no gratitude. And when they do, it shifts up and it shifts down with the circumstances of their life. They're thankful and then they're unthankful. They're grateful and then they're ungrateful. They're singing the praises of God one minute and the doxology is coming out of their mouths. And the next, they're, they're in the deepest, darkest pits of despair. They're like the person in James chapter 1, seeking answers from God regarding their trials. Why is this happening to me? Why haven't you given me enough? I'm not content. What, why my state of affairs? Why have I answered? Why have I come into this place? They want answers from God, and God needs to explain himself to me. It's discontent of the heart. And James says, well, just ask God, and he'll explain it to you. <laughs> well, actually, he doesn't say it that way. He says, ask God for wisdom so that you can understand why God is doing this. That's what he says. Consider it joy, and then ask God for wisdom so that you can understand his purposes in James 1, 6, it says this, But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. God, why don't I have enough? Why is this happening? What are my circumstances dictating? What, is this, what does all this mean? Well, you, wanna, you really want to know what God is doing? Then, then, then ask him. But don't doubt what he's doing. Ask in, in faith. Otherwise, you're like this person. You're... you're Tossed by the winds like a wave of the sea. They're discontent people. They're discontent about God's goodness. They doubt God's goodness. That's the doubting. You hear them talk and you wonder if they ever look at the blessings of God that God bestows upon them every single day. Paul learned to be content no matter what state he was in. You look at the example of Paul. Incredible. He, he describes it in Philippians 4, 11 to 12, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I, that's incredible. I, I know how to be abased. I, I know how to abound. I've been at both ends of the spectrum, he's saying. Everywhere and in all things, I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. But what he learned from all of that because of asking for the wisdom of God is that I can be content because God has deemed that that be the state. If you're content in any situation at all, whatever God brings your way, you're a thankful person. And I'm particularly thankful for you. <laughs> it's right before this passage where Paul encourages us not to be anxious. And he tells us in Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with what? Thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. You can bring requests to God. That's not discontentment, but you better, better bring it with thanksgiving. That's what he's saying. Contented people are thankful people, even when they bring requests to God. He looked at the situation, Paul did, and he said, I've, I've been in both ends, and I've learned to be content no matter what. God gives me or what he withholds. Contented people are giving people. You know, Jesus was watching those who, who put money into the temple treasury. Do you remember that? 
and, and then he saw a widow put in only two, two little mites. He said something pretty profound that, that they had given out of their abundance, but she had given out of her poverty. And because she had, she'd given more than them. She'd given out of her poverty. She was a giving, a giving person. Paul, Paul said the same kind of thing about the giving from the church in Macedonia in 2 Corinthians 8, 2, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. They didn't have much as a church, but they gave much as a church. John MacArthur said this, our generosity to the Lord's work is best determined by what we give when we have little. Are you giving people? Contented people are, are, are giving uh, people. In 2 Corinthians 9, this just popped in here. I, I don't have it on the screen. I'm just going to just read it real quick, and you can turn there if you want. But 2 Corinthians 9, we see a couple of principles uh, there. But in verse 6, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver, a cheerful one. And so those right, that give little, you know, they'll reap little, but those that give bountifully are going to reap bountifully, but God wants a cheerful uh, giver. And a contented person is going to be cheerful. Thank you, Lord, for what you've given me. And if I have a little, I'll give what I can out of my little. If I have a lot, I'll give what I can out of what you've given me. Contented people are also heavenly-minded people. What do I mean by that? Well, as we saw in Matthew as six, it's those people who, who seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and trust him to give all the rest of the things, all those, all those other things you're worrying about, all the, what I eat, what I drink, whatever. He's like, seek first God, seek first his kingdom, seek him first, and I'll give you all that stuff. Just get right with me first. The problem is we, we look at all those things first. I got to make sure my kids are clothed, my wife, I got all these things are done first. And then when I have time, I'll make sure I fit God in. It's, it's backwards. It never works. You start with God. Seek first his kingdom. Seek first his righteousness. And guess what? He, he brings all that stuff in. Contented people have the right order. They're seeking his kingdom first. They're the people whose minds are in heaven. In Colossians 3, 2, we're told to set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. Boy, I wish I could have my mind in heaven more often. Don't you? I wish my mind could be set in heaven more regularly. You think of that parable of the rich fool in Luke 12. And he looked at all his possessions. Well, he had a lot of possessions because that was his heart. He was amassing his kingdom, storing up treasures on, on earth. And when he had so much stuff, he looked around and said, wow, I don't even have, I don't even have stuff to store my stuff. I need to get more stuff so I can put my stuff in stuff. It's just stuff with stuff. And I remember, you know, when I first started in ministry, these wonderful cartoons, which are kind of faded away from existence today, sadly, but Veggie Tales were out. Remember Veggie Tales? As a children's pastor, I gorged on Veggie Tales, okay? Because I didn't know what I was doing. And I was like, oh, kids, let me teach you something through Veggie Tales, right? And I would throw on a Veggie Tale movie. And I will never forget, I will never forget that there was one about Madam Blueberry. You know Madam Blueberry. You've met Miss Blueberry. And Madam Blueberry had a lot to teach me about being content because she had a problem with stuff and she would go to Stuff Mart. That's where she would go. And she would buy stuff because Stuff Mart sells stuff. 
So whether it's Walmart or Asda, Tesco, you can say it's Stuff Mart. Let's be honest. It's just full of stuff. And she had to go and get the latest stuff and buy stuff. And she could never go there without coming home with stuff. It was a whole lesson about being content. Pastor Kevin was taught a lesson by, by a blueberry. I mean, I don't know. You know, go figure. But the, the idea is this stuff in the parable of the rich fool says, I've got so much stuff, I need to get containers to put my stuff in. And what did Jesus say about him? He says he's not rich toward God. Tonight, you don't even know this, man, but your soul is going to be required of you. You're down here building your kingdom. You're building storage places to put your stuff. And what you don't know is that your soul is required of you. You will leave that earth and your stuff will go to someone else. And guess what you're lacking? You have nothing toward God. You're not rich toward God. He laid up treasures on earth, but nothing in heaven. That's a sad truth. But contented people are heavenly-minded people, laying treasures in heaven. Just some things that occurred to me thinking about contentment. Still looking at 1 Timothy um, 6, think about the other uh, thing that's mentioned, the dangers of desire in verse, uh, sorry, verse 6, <clears throat> it starts, let me get back to it, I've lost my page now. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. So that's some of the gain. Then verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. You look at all these, there's all these dangers are listed there. Temptation, snare, lust, destruction, perdition, sorrows. I'm not, I don't want any of that. (laughs) And so listen, when we're, our hearts are captivated by the stuff, and we want to build our kingdoms, what we're actually pulling into our little storehouses is this list. This is what you're pulling into your homes, temptation, snare, destruction, lusts, perdition, sorrows. It's silly. There's many dangers here. This word desire is an interesting word. It's bulomai, and it means to wish or to will deliberately. The willing or wishing to be rich well, if you're wishing or willing, you just had more money. Because I say rich, people go, oh, that's not me. But if you wish you had more money, <laughs> that's the love of money. It's the greediness. I just don't have enough. Greed is never satisfied with more. It just leads to more. Our conduct as believers is to be without covetousness. It is to be without the desire or love of money. The rich young ruler came to Jesus asking how to inherit eternal life. And Jesus told him, you need to keep all the commandments. And the man said, oh, I've kept all of those since my, my youth. So what am, I, what am I lacking? And Jesus saw to his heart and said, oh, okay, well, if you want to be perfect, because <laughs> clearly that's what the man was saying. Well, if you want to be perfect, uh, go sell everything that you have, give it to the poor and follow me. What happened to that man? He went away sorrowful because he had Great possessions, we're told. The man was rich, and Jesus cut to the chase. You may have kept commandments, but I know where your heart is. It's with your treasure. You have many possessions. And he wanted to see if he could separate himself from those possessions, and he couldn't. And then he comes back to his disciples, and he says a staggering statement. And you know this in Matthew 19, 24. I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. 
Now, what is he saying there? What's Jesus' point? A rich man can't go to heaven? No. His point was this. It's impossible for a man who trusts in riches to get into heaven. Because a man who trusts in riches ultimately is trusting in himself. We don't get to heaven because we trusted in anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. That man's heart was attached to his treasure. And Jesus wanted to see if he'd be willing to lay up treasure in heaven, and he wasn't. That was too big a price to pay. His possessions had ended up possessing him. And that's the problem with possessions. We, we, we begin to become so attached. They detach themselves to us. We can't detach from them. And we're warned about this in Psalm 62, 10. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Don't, don't do that. And I want to look at a quick couple of lessons from the book of Ecclesiastes because Solomon wrote that book. We know that Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, and he was certainly powerful and very, very rich. And his great Ecclesiastes book is an experiment on the pleasures of the world. Let's see if I can find meaning in a meaningless world, and I'll try everything under the sun. And when he tries everything under the sun, he finds out it's all emptiness, vanity, vanity, he says over and over again. It's meaningless stuff. And one of those experiments is all centered around his wealth, his riches. And he says this in Ecclesiastes 5.10, He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. Or this, is, this is meaningless. The point is this. The more that you have, the more you want. In other words, if you have uh, silver, money, then you're just going to want more silver. That's, that's what you're going to want. Profit never fulfills those who pursue it. They, they only want more. If you think that all of your problems really could be solved by money, then you're deceived because the Bible tells us that you're only going to want more. In fact, he goes on in his experiment in verse 11 to say, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. (laughs) So what profit have the owners except (laughs) to see them with their eyes? (laughs) The point is this, that the more that you have, then the more you need. With more wealth comes more people to consume your wealth. We were talking about this at breakfast. The tax guy is always there. The beneficiaries come out of the uh, woodwork. More responsibilities. And here's the idea. The only success, he says, the only benefit a rich man has is to just look at his goods, to see it before it disappears into the mouths and pockets of others. And then in verse 12, he goes on to say, the sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. So the more you have, the more you worry about what you have. That's his point. Because they lose sleep over it. Well, I just might just, I might lose, I might lose all this stuff. You're losing sleep over money. The overall point of of that is this, that money isn't the answer. Money will not solve your problems. Money creates many, many problems for us. Building our kingdoms of self Our little worlds on possessions and money and homes and cars and furniture. Isn't that what the foolish man did? But the wise man built his house upon the rock. That stood firm. Now, let me give you a couple examples of the love of money 
that could be operating in our hearts to see if I can make this practical. Remember, love of money then is discontentment. One of them, and I, I'm, I'm just speaking out of experience here, okay? Maybe you have different ideas, but one of them is spending money out of compulsion. When we were married, our early days of marriage, we were broke. We were living in New York City. It's expensive to live there. And when we would get paid, we'd have enough money to split a McDonald's Happy Meal. We were broke, okay? We had no money. But there was always a nagging emptiness uh, within us. And I, I can maybe speak for my, myself, maybe more than my wife. But, but going and wandering the aisles and stores and, and, and trying to buy little things that I didn't need somehow filled the emptiness, the nagginess. For some of you, you can relate, relate it this way. You, you, you get paid, you, you wander the store aisles, throwing random bits that happen to be on sale into your shopping trolley. And the reason that you do that is because you're hoping that it will fill for a temporary moment of time the discontentment. And why do you have discontentment? Because you don't have a lot of money. And so for a short time, for a short time, it makes you feel like everybody else. Everybody else appears to have plenty of money to go out and buy. They're out shopping and they're laughing and you, you're missing out. You want to be part of that. And so when you're out and you're participating and you're throwing all this stuff in that you don't need, it's actually coming from a place of discontentment. Maybe you have never experienced that. Hey, maybe that's just me. But deep down, you're looking at what everyone else has and what everyone else can do, and you're missing out, and you want that. You covet that. I want the freedom to buy whatever I want, whenever I want, like everyone else is doing. And it becomes a compulsive act. Are you a compulsive spender? It's because you're discontent with God, what God has given you, and you have money love in your heart. If buying stuff is making you feel better about your financial situation, you're covetous, discontent. How about spending money you don't have? We have devised an incredible system in our world called credit. Um, there's good credit and bad credit. Don't have time to go into all that, obviously. But credit cards, that's a bad, bad credit, okay? It's not bad to have a credit card and use a credit card as long as you're able to pay off the balance of that credit card every month before the interest begins to accrue. Because when you use a credit card to buy stuff you don't have the money for, you're spending money you don't actually have, and you are paying off that minimum balance each month, but the interest is so high that that balance just keeps going, and soon you're in bondage to this debt monster that you have created, all because you have not been provided by God the money to buy those things, but you saw fit out of your infinite wisdom to buy the stuff anyway. I know it sounds harsh. I was in that. It's true. My wife and I were deeply in debt in our early years of marriage. I brought a lot of that in because as a college student, the credit card companies uh, place themselves right in the midst of them because they know college students have no money, College students are stupid, and they'll get a credit card, all right? That's what they know. They just know those two things. And they saw Kevin. They said, he fits the bill. So I got credit cards. I had no money. I had no clothing. I wanted to look like everybody else, so I went and used my credit card. I thought, this is the most amazing creation. I just flashed this piece of plastic, smile and wave. They gave me everything I want. 
but I became a slave to payments on that credit card. And by the time we had gotten married and we moved back and forth to New York, plane tickets went on the credit card, moving costs, all those things. And before we came, we came back and wanted to start a family, we were $25,000 in debt to credit cards, which you can <laughs> never hope to pay off by paying the minimum amount. Deeply, deeply in debt. It was not until we committed to God, recognizing finally that this was wrong, that we were spending money we didn't have and he had not provided. To pay that off, we submitted ourselves to a debt consolidation company to pay these things, um, these things off. God provided a job for me that allowed us to pay off in three years, which is incredible. But it's spending money you don't have. God never gave us that money. We didn't have the ability to, to do any of that. We just chose to do it because we wanted to do it. Spending money out of a distorted sense of need, we sure use the word need a lot. Oh, I need this. I need that. I need that. I wonder if God would look at those and say, yeah, those are needs. Those are genuine needs. Yep. They're not usually, are they? They're wants. We need something. We've got to go get it. Well, do we really need it? Is it a desire? Where do desires come from? They come from the heart. Instead, we're supposed to rely on God who gives us everything we truly need. Philippians 4.19 says, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. God has promised to supply us our necessities. The problem is we're just not satisfied with the necessities. We want more. Taking us back to 1 Timothy 6.8 there, he says, Having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. We should be content with just the basics. Our lives are to be without covetousness, completely free of it. Now, covetousness and discontentment have a deeper root issue. If you go back to our passage here, I want you to see this. It's mentioned here, but it's harder to see. Look at the latter half of verse 5. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Not only should we be free from the love of money, but this tells us that we need to be free from fear. Yeah. Now, what is the connection with fear? Why is fear here? Well, first of all, let me talk about fear. Fear always drives us someplace other than God. Fear doesn't drive you to God. It drives us away from God. Just think about it for the minute. Think about all the things that you fear. You fear losing possessions, loss of health, losing a loved one, um, losing um, relationships, all the things we fret over, right? Finances and careers and relationships and health and all those things, our future. Those things, when we worry about those things, that drive us, drive us away from God. But, but Christians are not to be governed by fear. We have a new spirit within us that's not fear. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Fear then drives us into idolatry, we actually go into the arms of another God, away from God, when you turn to anything other than God. And that only increases fear. It never ha handles the problem of fear. Psalm 16.4 illustrates this. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. If fear drives you someplace other than God, you've gone into the arms of another God and your sorrows will be multiplied. Let me give you examples of how this works. I've talked about this before, so sorry if this is 
redundant, but this is just, this is how this, this works. Fear, fear is one side of a human coin, okay? Fear is one side, lust is the other. They're sort of the two primitive examples of where our hearts operate. And if we lust for, let's say, money, like we're talking about, then we're going to fear the loss of losing it, fear the loss of fear never getting it in the first place. If we lust for human approval, we will fear human disapproval. Lust and fear go together. They're two sides of the same coin. We fear rejection, we're going to lust for acceptance. You fear physical pain, then you're lusting for environments that are going to be free of pain. Now notice in our passage, you don't want to miss this, the author places covetousness and discontentment in direct relationship to being afraid. Interesting. What are we afraid of when we're talking about money and possessions? What are we worried about? You're worried about your future. You're worried about where these things will come from because you think it's coming from who? You. It doesn't come from you. It comes from God. It's his. Lust and fear will always be fastened upon the very same object. We fear what mankind will do in, to us in, in this weird world. We're going to lust for whatever gives us security from the world. We lust for whatever may provide that security. Then we're going to fear what threatens or our possession of that object, whatever that is that makes us feel secure. Fear, lust, they go together. And they're the primitive expressions of a heart that is self-ruled, a prideful heart where God does not rule. Fear then is a desire to control or preserve what we have. And we just want to control and preserve our kingdoms built upon our wealth, whether big or small. Money gives us then a false sense of security. It tells us that as long as I have money, I'll be okay. If God took away everything you owned today, let me tell you, you'll probably be more okay than you've ever been because you'll realize it. It's wrong security. That's what our passage says. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you have God, you have everything. Some people are coming from some hard worlds. I know. You are destitute. You have difficult backgrounds, difficult upbringing, whatever it might be. You've never known wealth. You've never known money. You've never known security. This is all you've ever heard. I want to tell you there's a better place to go, and it's God. God will give you everything you need. He spoke these words. He himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you to Israel to the children of Israel as they were about to go into the promised land to conquer an unknown land, God says, okay, now as you cross into that land, I'm giving you everything you need to succeed. Me. (laughs) I will never leave you nor forsake you. Let's go. You have everything you need. Here in the context of money and possessions, the author says, listen, don't fear. God has already said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And so guess what? You don't have to fear. Isn't that amazing? Could you say that about money, that it will never leave you or forsake you? Could you say, Gene and I were talking about this, but he's like, money moves away from me. (laughs) 
it's like my kryptonite. It just, <laughs> but that's a biblical. I said it's in the Bible. Proverbs 23, 5 says, will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. And maybe that's all you've ever known about money. Watching the rear tail fly away. Like, it's a folly, isn't it? To set our eyes and our hearts on things that can so easily, so easily be taken from us. And they can provide no real lasting security. But God's promises provide us real security. Therefore, in verse 6, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? You know, that's a quote from Psalm 118.6. It's a messianic psalm. I invite you to read through that on your own. We won't have time today. And many parts of the New Testament quote parts of Psalm 118. It's absolutely marvelous. But the whole psalm is, is, surrender about, is, is about the psalmist being surrounded by his enemies. And um, they threaten to destroy him. In Psalm 118, verse 6, he says this, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So there's the, the, the quote uh, there. And in the, the psalm, the Lord indeed gives him victory over his enemies. Now, isn't it interesting how the author connects fear in relation to our possessions with fear of enemies? Have you ever looked at your possessions or as your, at your money as possible enemies? The author does. Money, possessions can become our enemies if we do not approach them with a proper perspective. And what is that perspective? Point three, be full of contentment. We're to be without the love of money. We're to be without any fear, but we better be full of something, and that's contentment. You are to approach your possessions and money with full contentment. Be content with such things as you have. It all starts here, content with what God has provided. In 1 Timothy 6, 6, to remind you, he said, godliness with contentment is great gain. And we looked at some of the gain there. Money, possessions are the wrong kind of gain, ultimately. It's godliness when accompanied by contentment, great gain. With money or without? The gain isn't the money. The gain is contentment. Are you content with what little you have? You have great gain. You're very rich toward God. Great joy and satisfaction can be ours if we simply learn contentment. Now, how can we learn to be content? I just want to end tonight with just um, a couple of points to help you with that. How do, we, how do we learn to be content? Maybe contentment's been a struggle for you. I had years of that. That's okay. Where do you want to begin? Let me just help you with some things. First, this. Recognize God's ownership. You own nothing. You, know, you don't even own you, okay? You're not the master of your own soul. You came into this world, what did it say? With nothing. And what will you take out? Nothing. And who will take you out? God, okay? So literally, we got nothing, folks. So remember, recognize God's ownership. He, he has it all. Psalm 50 speaks of all that he has, the cattle on a thousand hills. He knows the birds in the mountains, the wild beasts, he says, of the field. They're all mine. All that's mine. The world is mine in all its fullness, he says. Psalm 24, 1, he says this, the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. The earth, all the fullness, the world, everyone who dwells in it, all of that, God's. So listen, you have to start there. 
It is very actually helpful. The first time that clicked for me was very helpful. God owns it all. Wait, it all comes from God? So why have I been running after these things? Exactly! (laughs) Stop! It's God's. Secondly, realize God's goodness. You know what? God is good. A lot of times with counseling, that's the first question I'll ask when a hard story has come out. I will ask that question, is God good? Because I want to see if they've lost the goodness of God, lost sight of God being good, even in the midst of difficulties, even in the midst of trouble, even in the midst of all your possessions flying away like an eagle, God is good. And James 1.17 tells us every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and it comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God never changes. Every good, perfect gift comes from him. He's always good. So recognize that he owns it all and realize that it comes from him and it's good. Third, remember God's omniscience. Why do I bring up that attribute of God? Omniscience is all-knowing, okay? That's what it is. God knows everything, which means he knows your situation. He knows it before you need to bring it up to him. God, apparently you've been asleep or something because I'm struggling here, you know? And we go to God and say, uh, maybe, you, you know, you're not quite aware of my situation and I want to make you aware I could really use some help here remember in Luke 12 when we read that that the Gentiles seek after all those things the Gentiles in that was those who don't know God we know God we know that he's good we know he owns it all and so in Luke 12 29 which says do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink nor have an anxious mind for all these the, the things of the nations the of the world seek after. Your father knows that you, you need these things. We, we, we shouldn't have anxiety no. over these things. We, you know, we can pray to God. Obviously, we can take these things to him, but we, we shouldn't be taken into him it, with anxiety as if he just is un, uh, unaware of our uh, predicament. In fact, we should just be more accepting of our situation because we have to recognize, um, which is the next one, God's sovereignty. Yeah. Relent to God's sovereignty. It's hard for us to submit to that, so you need to let go. Relent. He deals with each one of us differently as he wills. You cannot look at other people in the church, other people in your family, and say, well, why has he prospered them? Why is he doing that? What? Listen, that's God's sovereignty. You don't bring that to him. Listen, I know why I was never made a rich and successful actor. I know why. I was not good at handling resources in those days. I would have made a mess of myself. And God in his mercy said, I'm going to withhold that from that guy because that boy, he needs to learn something. (laughs) You know, we learn this though. This is true even in a distribution of spiritual gifts. God gives to each one as he wills. He does the same with material blessings. You think of Hannah's great prayer. She recognized God's sovereignty in her prayers. 1 Samuel 2, 7, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he lifts up. He's the one that does it. I'll just submit to him. I'll remember he is sovereign. And one more, if you allow me, remind yourself what true riches are. Every believer in this room is insanely wealthy. You have no idea. I have no idea how rich I am. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What on earth 
can I make a withdrawal from that? You know, you got, we're loaded, people. Our needs are supplied according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. We have an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. It's in the most secure, locked vault anywhere. And he reminded his disciples, Jesus did, that we can rejoice because our names are written in heaven. You're just incredibly, incredibly rich. We're so rich. Our father is so good, which is why we're told to set our minds on things above and not on earth. Godliness with contentment is very great gain. Be content with what God has given you. He knows what you need. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. Lord, we thank you that you've given us direction to address these two very important topics these last couple of weeks. We thank you how you've already begun to work in the hearts of your people on these issues. Lord, we we, we all need these things. We need to be reminded how easily these things on earth can capture our hearts and how quickly our worship is diverted to those things. We want to be worshipers of God. We want to be known by as those who love you and are fully devoted to you. Lord, I just pray for your people today. We're all at different stages in terms of Lord, what what we have on this earth, which is just so silly when I when I think about it. Lord, I, it's just stuff. My house is so full of stuff. I have an attic that has more stuff, and it's just things. Lord, may we just unclutter our lives from things, from stuff. Stop being slaves to those things, and instead, Lord, set our minds on things above. I wonder how many Christians would be able to rattle off the things that are above, the things that they have there so quickly as they could rattle off their earthly possessions. Lord, may we meditate so deeply on the great blessings of God as your, that wonderful song says, count your blessings, name them one by one, and you will discover what the Lord has done. We need to remember to do that, I think, a little more often. Lord, thanks for being patient with us, your children who can be so foolish. You were so patient with me, and I'm grateful. Lord, thank you for this time together. I pray that your people will be encouraged and strengthened and edified and even convicted from our time together in your word for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 amen.